Volume One, Chapter One of Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in March two thousand and eight. Volume One, Chapter One, The Will. In a large and handsomely furnished room of a somewhat old-fashioned house, situated in a rural district in the south of Scotland, was assembled one day in the early summer of eighteen fifty, a small group in deep mourning. Mr. Hogarth of Cross Hall had been suddenly taken ill a few days previously, and had never recovered consciousness so far as to be able to speak, though he had apparently known those who were about him, and especially the two orphan nieces whom he had brought up as his daughters. He had no other near relations whom any one knew of, and had never been known to regret that the name of Hogarth of Cross Hall was likely to become extinct. He had the reputation of being the most eccentric man in the country, and was thought to be the most inconsistent. With the highest opinion possible of women, and the greatest pleasure in their society, he had never married, and with the greatest affection for his nieces, and the greatest theoretical confidence in them, he had hedged them about with countless laws and restrictions, and had educated them in a way quite different from the training of young ladies of their rank and prospects. He had succeeded two childless elder brothers in the possession of the estate, and Jane and Alice Melville were the only children of his only sister, who had been dead for fifteen years. The funeral had just taken place, and the two girls had been summoned into the drawing-room to hear the will read by Mr. Macfarlane, the Edinburgh lawyer, who had drawn it out. They found in the room Mr. Baird, their uncle's medical attendant, and a stranger whom they had never seen before—a tall, grave-looking man of about thirty-four, whose mourning was new, and who showed a deep interest in what was going on. Both the man of law and the man of medicine looked nervous and embarrassed and delayed proceeding to business as long as they possibly could, fumbling with knots of red tape, opening the closed curtains to admit a little more light, and then closing them again as if the light was too strong, so that the sisters had time to look at the stranger, and to wonder who he was and what his business could be there. He also seemed to be taking notes of the young ladies in a quiet, timid manner. At last the will was opened, and after the usual preamble the lawyer's voice seemed to break a little. He cleared his throat and continued in a lower tone. As I have come to the conclusion that the minds of men and women are radically the same, and as I believe that if the latter are trained in the same way as the former, they will be equally capable of making their own way in the world, I have acted upon this principle in the education of my two beloved nieces, Jane and Alice Melville, the only surviving children of my sister Mary Hogarth, and as I foresee that if I were to leave them wealthy heiresses my purpose would be completely thwarted, by Jane losing her independent character, and Alice sinking into a confirmed invalid, and by both being to a dead certainty picked up by needy spendthrifts who will waste their fortunes and break their hearts, as their father, George Melville, served my poor foolish sister, I hereby convey and dispose all my property, whatsoever and wheresoever, heritable and movable, to Francis Ormistown otherwise Hogarth, at present head-clerk at the Bank of Scotland, who is my son by a private irregular marriage contracted with Elizabeth Ormistown, on the ninth day of July, eighteen, and who is my heir-at-law, though he would find it difficult to prove his claim, as he knows nothing of the relation between us, and as the only party besides myself cognizant of the marriage, dares not come forward to prove it, but whose progress I have watched with interest, who has made an honourable position for himself, without any assistance from me, beyond a good education, who has served faithfully, and who is likely to rule uprightly, who has raised himself from nameless poverty, and whom, therefore, I judge to be worthy of wealth and honour provided always that he shall pay to Jane and Alice Melville, my beloved nieces aforesaid, the sum of twelve pounds a year each, in quarterly payments in advance, for three years following my decease, when such payments shall cease, as by that time I believe they will be independent in circumstances. 
provided also that he shall give to the said Jane and Alice Melville the furniture and personal effects belonging to them, as mentioned more particularly in the schedule marked A, appended to this instrument, and that he shall give to the said Jane and Alice Melville no further assistance either in money or in money's worth, directly or indirectly whatsoever. Also providing that the said Francis Ormistown, otherwise Hogarth, shall not marry either of his cousins, the marriage of such near relations being mischievous and improper. In case of any of these provisions being disregarded by the said Francis Ormistown, otherwise Hogarth, all my heritable and movable property shall be divided among certain benevolent institutions, in the order and manner set forth in the schedule marked with the letter B. All these provisions I have made, as being the best for my surviving relatives, and I believe they will eventually acknowledge them to be such. It would be hard to say which of the three parties interested felt most astonishment at this extraordinary will. Jane Melville stood rigid and silent, with her face flushed and her eyes filled with tears, which she would not let fall. Alice's face lost all colour, and she seemed ready to faint. But the greatest excitement was shown by the fortunate legatee. He shook from head to foot, steadying himself on the table, looked from the two girls to the two gentlemen with bewildered eyes, and said at last with difficulty, in a low, soft, tremulous voice, was Mr. Hogarth in his senses when he made this will? A little excited, but indisputably in full possession of his senses, strange as the will appears, said Mr. Macfarlane, the lawyer, and Mr. Baird will corroborate my opinion. Mr. Baird bowed his head affirmatively. Quite true. His head was quite clear at the time. The will was made six weeks ago, and you, Miss Melville, know how well he was then. Very grieved, indeed. Most inconceivable conduct, cruel, inconsiderate. I feel deeply for your disappointment. Try not to give way, Miss Alice. Or perhaps you had better give way. It may relieve you. Mr. Macfarlane tells me that he remonstrated with Mr. Hogarth. Most painful duty. Must obey instructions, of course. Your uncle seemed like adamant. I pity you with all my heart." "'And so do I with all my heart,' said Mr. Macfarlane. "'And does no one pity me?' said the low voice of the heir to all. But it was unheeded, for Alice had fainted. Her sister and Mr. Baird laid her on the sofa, and applied the usual restoratives. Mr. Macfarlane began to speak in an undertone to the new master, of the extent and value of the property he had thus suddenly come into possession of, and congratulated him rather stiffly on the turn of fortune that had raised him from a life of labour and comparative poverty, to ease and affluence. But his embarrassment was nothing compared to that of the man whom he addressed. Francis Hogarth looked around the spacious room, and out of the window to the pleasant shrubbery and smooth-shaven lawn, and shuddered when he thought of the two young cousins, brought up apparently in the lap of luxury, who were to be turned out upon the world with twelve pounds a year for three years. The elder sister seemed to have a vigorous and robust constitution, but the younger looked delicate. He saw in his mind eye two governesses, dragging out a weary and monotonous existence far from each other, while he, possessed of superabundance, was debarred from helping them. He advanced timidly to the sofa. Alice, who had recovered consciousness, covered her face with both her hands and sobbed aloud. Jane turned towards him a glance, not of reproach, but of pity. He felt it, and took her hand. "'Believe me, Miss Melville, no one can regret this extraordinary will as I do. I will overturn it, if I possibly can.' "'You cannot,' said Jane. "'It is quite in keeping with all my uncle's ideas, quite consistent with all he has told us over and over again. He had many strange notions but he was generally in the right, and it may prove to be so now." The sigh that accompanied these words told how faint her hopes were. "'It has been positive unkindness to bring you up as he did, and now to throw you upon the world. My beginning was different. How could he expect the same success for you—women, too? And are women so inferior, then? It was my uncle's cherished belief that they were not. He said he never saw a woman take up man's work without succeeding in it. I must try to show that I will be no exception.' 
He was not unkind to take us on our mother's death from a careless and unprincipled father, to bring us into a quiet and happy home, to educate us to the best of his judgment, to be always kind, always reasonable. Ah, no, my dear uncle, though this seems very hard, it was not meant for unkindness. It is cruel, cruel, said Alice. He must have been mad. What will become of us? What will become of us? At this burst of despair from Alice, Jane's courage gave way, and the heavy tears rolled down her cheeks. Elsie, darling, at the worst we can only die, and we are not afraid of death. But no, we shall live to conquer all this yet. "'You cannot as yet lay any plan,' said Mr. Macfarlane. "'Mr. Ormiston—Mr. Uh, Hogarth, I should say—is in no hurry to take possession. You can have a month to look about you, and there is no saying what may turn up in a month.' "'Certainly,' said the new cousin. "'I am sure I would be most happy to give the young ladies accommodation in this large house for as long as they please, if that is not forbidden by the will.' A permanent residence is clearly forbidden, for no assistance beyond the small money payment specified can be offered or accepted, but I think a month to remain and to collect all their wardrobe and personal property may be permitted. I ought to return to the bank, and work till they find a substitute, and will leave my cousins the undisturbed possession of Cross Hall for a month. In the meantime I feel as if my presence must be a painful intrusion. I must leave you." "'Perhaps,' said Jane, "'though you cannot give us money, you may be able to give us advice. You are going to Edinburgh. You may see or hear of something we could do. I should be most happy to do so. What line of life should you like to enter on? Anything we could make a living by. Then I suppose a governess's situation? I might teach boys, but I have not learned what would qualify me to instruct girls. But I do thoroughly understand bookkeeping, write a good hand, have gone through Euclid, and know as much of the classics as nine out of ten young men in my rank of life. But my uncle cared very little for the classics. I know a good deal of chemistry and mineralogy, but Uncle was most pleased with my bookkeeping. How did you get on when you began to work for yourself? I entered the bank as a junior clerk, at the age of sixteen, and got thirty pounds for the first two years. An unknown friend—I know now who he was—who had paid for my education and all other expenses previously, sent me twelve pounds a year for three years to help out my earnings. "'And you could live on that?' said Jane. "'I did live on it, somehow,' said Francis. My coats were very threadbare, and my meals scanty, but I weathered these three years, and then I got a good step, and crept up gradually. I have been now in this same bank for seventeen years, and am at present in the receipt of two hundred and fifty pounds a year, thinking myself rich and fortunate. Now I am rich and unfortunate. Why did not my father leave me to the career I had made for myself, and you to the inheritance you had been brought up to expect? Thirty pounds a year to begin with, said Jane, half aloud. Two hundred and fifty pounds after seventeen years' work. Very sweet, all one's own earning. I am not afraid. Only let Elsie keep up heart. I cannot, said Elsie. I'll be dead long before seventeen years are over. I will take good care of you, said Jane. How are you to take good care of either yourself or of me if we are starving? said Elsie, with a fresh burst of tears. We will do our best. So are you are going, Mr. Hogarth. Write to me if you can hear of anything for me. I will be much obliged to you. Good-bye. Jane shook hands with her cousin kindly, and soon after Mr. Macfarlane and Mr. Baird also withdrew, leaving the sisters alone. Elsie wept till she was completely exhausted, while her sister sat at the table with pen and ink and paper before her, but writing nothing. End of Volume 1, Chapter 1 Part 1 This recording is in the public domain.